Over the past 50 years, no issue has been more central to the US economic story than energy. For many decades, energy prices played the role of spoiler, with spikes pushing the US economy into recession. More recently, technological advances have dramatically increased US energy production, making energy a key source of economic vitality. For many people, energy simply means oil, or maybe even natural gas. But today's energy industry is evolving in more ways than one. Technological advancements have led the US to become a net exporter of oil. Renewable energy sources continue to increase their share of overall electricity production. And energy companies are increasingly focused on cash flow and profitability rather than just production. With so much in flux, investment opportunities are being created across both the public and private markets. To discuss all of this, I'm joined today by David Leibovitz, Global Market Strategist on our Market Insights team. So first question is, how do you see the energy industry evolving over the long term? You know, it's a it's a key question, and we've been getting it quite a bit um, as of late. You know, when we think about energy, we we recognize that in the long run, economic tailwinds should really continue to support the transition from fossil fuels towards more sustainable sources of energy. And at the end of the day, you know, energy prices are really all about supply and demand. And the reality of the situation is that today. The world remains awash in oil. Um, Following the shale boom in 2015, the U.S. became the world's marginal producer of oil, and and that really undermined the dynamic that had previously been at play. And so, you know, in the the very short term here, it's difficult to completely transition away from fossil fuels. We we recognize that that is going to take time, uh, but we do expect that oil supply will be more readily available uh, from this point forward. And, And interestingly, when we look at the United States Specifically, U.S. drillers have really demonstrated not only an ability, uh, but a willingness to to increase drilling activity in response to higher oil prices. And when we look at the shale sector in particular, we we find that average break-evens to drill a new well are right around $49 a barrel, whereas break-evens to operate an existing well are around $30 a barrel. And at the end of the day, this really underpins our view that oil prices will remain somewhere between $45 and $50 a barrel over the coming years. So with, with oil supply far larger today than, than has been the case historically, particularly in the United States, uh, we do believe that the U.S. is set to export more petroleum and petroleum products uh, than it imports over time. And, and this should really coincide with an increase in, in crude oil production here in the United States, but also a decline in domestic consumption. And I think that this is representative of that dynamic I was alluding to earlier in the sense that we will gradually move away from traditional fossil fuels towards things like like renewables, uh, but it's very much not going to happen overnight and is certainly going to begin uh, here in the developed world. And, And so as we deal with elevated oil supply in the short run, but a transition towards renewable in the long run, you know, we really think that the pricing is going to be the key driver of this transition. And coming back to what I said earlier, you know, economic tailwinds will win out over longer periods of time. When we think about what this transition will look like. Um, I think a greater reliance on natural gas will be a key part of it. It's much cleaner to burn than coal, and there is certainly plenty of it. Um, And although natural gas production does look set to outpace consumption in the short term, uh, we do expect consumption to grow at a more robust clip from 2030 on as its use in electric power and the industrial sectors begins to increase. Um, When we finally get to to a world that is characterized by the greater use of renewables, uh, it does appear that solar and wind 
will be the most significant contributors to electricity production over time. And so when we think about energy as a theme and a trend over the long run here, it's very much grounded in fossil fuels today, uh, but moving towards renewables in the uh, in the long run. Okay, that's a long term view. But how's I mean, surely all of this has been impacted to some extent by the coronavirus pandemic around the world. How have your views changed because of COVID-19? Absolutely. I think that it's it's hard to find a part of the uh, the economy that hasn't been impacted by COVID over these past couple of months. Uh, perhaps the most evident impact is in the demand for transportation fuels. We've seen a significant decline since the middle of March uh, because of not only the spread of COVID-19, but efforts to, to mitigate it as well. And, and demand for motor gas and jet fuel in particular have fallen to their lowest levels in years. And so we've really seen a significant decline in demand over these past seven months. And in response to this, you have seen U.S. refiners reduce their operations and make other changes that have resulted in proportionally less production of gasoline and jet fuel, and actually more production of distillate fuels, so things like heating oil and diesel. Um, If we go back to to April, we saw refiners initially respond to this decline in demand by by decreasing overall refinery runs. And actually, in April of this year, refinery runs were 22% lower compared with the full year 2019 average of 17 million barrels per day. Um, In May, we saw something very similar running at about 21% of the 2019 pace. And what is most fascinating really to me about this decline in production uh, was that they they really did a nice job of matching the overall declines in, in demand and consumption. Now, since that point in time, we have seen the rate of global oil demand growth uh, remain a bit sluggish, but but still begin to bounce back. And the majority of the bounce back perhaps unsurprisingly, was really concentrated in June and July. Uh, In June, we saw global oil demand increase by 6 million barrels per day. Uh, In July, we saw it increase by 3.1 million barrels today. Whereas in August and September, as case growth was reaccelerating in the United States and we were seeing some lockdowns uh, be be put back into place, we did see the pace of demand slow, uh, increasing by about a million barrels a day per month uh, over that period, respectively. And, And as we've seen case growth, uh, reaccelerate not just in the U.S. but around the world over these past couple of weeks, um, we have seen a renewed government imposition of restrictions, uh, albeit to a lesser extent than what was seen earlier this year. And we do think that this is contributing to some of the downward pressure on oil prices uh, that has been observed as of late. Now, one interesting thing that I that I did pick up on is that jet fuel consumption is actually recovering much more quickly than expected. Um, the EIA estimates that as of the middle of August, consumption of jet fuel by U.S. commercial passenger flights was about 612,000 barrels per day, or 43% of the estimated amount that was consumed on, on the same date one year prior. And 43% certainly doesn't sound all that great in and of itself. But when you look at the estimates of jet fuel consumption compared with year ago levels in other parts of the global economy, you see it's about 36% of what was observed in 2019 in Europe, uh, about 30% in EMEA, 28% of Asia, and in the other parts of the Americas, around 24%. And so we are seeing things come back online. And I think that you know the, the interesting thing about, about aviation and jet fuel consumption is that you are beginning to see uh, travel, travel resume here in the United States. And then just one final point here, turning to electricity. 
We do expect that that retail sales of electricity uh, will be down about 6% this year in the commercial sector uh, and down about 5.6% in the industrial sector. But residential retail sales of electricity actually look set to have increased by 3% in 2020. Again, reflecting this dynamic that people have been going to school from home, people have been working from home. And so it's very much been uneven in terms of the impact of COVID uh, across the energy sector in this country more broadly. Okay, so, I mean, obviously COVID has changed everything. We will get past this pandemic, though. And I think one of the other dynamics that we're all very aware of is this increased focus on renewables. So when you think about renewables in the long run, where do you see the most opportunity? What's interesting is that when we think about renewables, to me, it's it's really all about solar and wind. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in, in just a moment. Um, you know, the the mix of electricity generation in this country continues to experience a a rapid rate of change. And according to the EIA, again, they do estimate that renewables will be the fastest growing source of electricity generation through 2050. Uh, When we look at what's driving this, it's really being driven by continued declines in the capital costs for both solar and wind. Part of this is supported by federal tax credits. Uh, Part of this is supported by higher state level renewable targets. But the bottom line is that with increasing electricity production from renewables, things like coal-fired plants, nuclear electricity generation do look set to decline over the course of the coming years. And so to put some numbers around it, uh, in 2019, about 17% of electricity came from renewables. In 2020, we estimate that that number is around 20%. And in 2021, we think it's going to 22%. And again, this increase in the share from renewables is really the result of planned additions to both wind and solar generating capacity. And one of the things that that I think people may not necessarily know about renewables is you oftentimes have decent foresight in terms of capacity that is coming online, because so much of this needs to be planned in advance that, that we can have a pretty, we can do a pretty good job estimating what the share of electricity coming from renewables will look like over time. So the EIA does expect the U.S. electric sector to add 23.3 gigawatts of new wind capacity in this year and 7.3 gigawatts of new capacity in 2021. Um, That should be complemented by about 14 gigawatts of of additional electricity capacity in the solar sector this year uh, and close to 12 gigawatts of capacity in 2021. And everybody always asks me, well, well, what what is a gigawatt? How do I think about that um, in terms of of things that I may be more familiar with? Um, It is the equivalent of 1.3 million horses or 2,000 Corvettes. And just tying it back to the solar and the wind story, uh, one gigawatt is produced by about 3.125 million solar panels or 412 wind turbines. So when you think about the number of panels it takes, the number of turbines it takes in the context of the amount of capacity that is coming online, there's clearly an investment opportunity here, surely given the scale uh, at which the the renewable space is growing. And so we do expect continued growth here as the result of tax credits. Obviously, the upcoming election uh, will play a role in determining the, the speed at which renewables continue to grow their share of overall electricity 
electricity production. Um, but one thing I would point out is that new wind capacity additions are continuing or are, are expected to continue at much lower levels because there are production tax credits that are set to expire over the next couple of years. That said, the growth in solar looks quite robust through 2050, um, both because of the decline in the cost of solar panels uh, over, the over the course of the projection period more broadly. And then just finally, one point on, on natural gas. You know, I did mention earlier that natural gas is going to be essential to the transition away from where we are today towards a greater reliance on renewables going forward. Uh, natural gas, uh, along with solar, are expected to have the greatest cost advantages going forward and, and therefore enjoy the most significant growth. And, and solar plants in particular tend to be more profitable um, as they produce most of their energy during the middle of the day. And, and that's when demand tends to be higher and therefore the value of the electricity being produced is greater. And so to my mind, you know, wind may, may ebb a little bit here, but there's still still a pretty firm tailwind supporting the transition towards solar. Well, th thanks, David. I, I must say, and th thank you also for the education and the gigawatt. I always thought that was what powered the DeLorean and Back to the Future. Uh, but um, speaking of the future, I mean, th so there is a certain amount of predictability in what's changing here, but there's also a lot of change so what does this actually mean for, for the energy companies? You know, energy is a sector that that I think we've we've wanted to like for a long time, but there have been significant headwinds facing this sector really, really since 2015. And, you know, when we look at what's happened over the course of this year thus far, um, the, the COVID-induced downturn of 2020 has really been different in the sense that, that it's been synchronized across the entire energy sector. And so it's affected upstream companies downstream companies, uh, as well as chemicals. And, and in response to all of this, you've seen CapEx decline by 50% on a year-over-year -year basis in the U.S., decline by 25% on a year-over-year -year basis globally. But again, given the robust oil supply that, that we see in the background, um, this may not be the, the worst thing in, in the world. And so arguably, this reduction in CapEx may begin to think bring things back into a bit more balance, which could be a tailwind for the energy sector over longer periods of time. Um, in particular, you're really seeing oil services suffer. There was entirely too much capacity coming into this downturn. And obviously, that's been exacerbated by the decline in demand. Um, and when we look at margins, which are essential in driving energy company profitability, we do expect them to be a bit slow to recover as demand for refined products um, is expected to remain quite weak. And so, you know, the energy sector is definitely moving in a more positive direction. And I'll touch on um, some of the opportunities that we see here in just a minute. But one of the questions we keep getting asked is, given the dividend yield that, that is available on the energy sector, you know, how worried should people really be uh, about the sustainability of those dividends? And the bottom line is that it's really on a case-by-case -case basis. And the most important thing to focus on are those companies with manageable dividend break-evens. And so, you know, you don't want to own a company who needs oil prices north of 50 in order to play its dividend. You want to focus on a company that can pay its dividend when oil prices are, say, between 40 and $45 a share, which is where we expect oil prices to remain uh, over the course of the coming years. We also think you want to focus on companies with quality balance sheets, um, a deep inventory of drilling prospects, and, and generally low costs. And one way that we do believe these companies can improve their cost efficiency is by expanding their business model, if it doesn't already incorporate it, uh, into the uh, into the shale space 
the shale space from from our vantage point is not dead, but but rather dormant uh, and should return with better profitability as the recovery continues. And also, given the lowest development costs, uh, we do see an opportunity there again from from a from a cost standpoint. Um, obviously, banning fracking would make this a very difficult environment for shale producers, but that does not necessarily seem like the most probable outcome, uh, regardless of what happens with the election here in a couple of weeks. And so it's really all about quality on the equity side. When we look at the fixed income side, the energy sector really has more debt than ever across both investment grade and high yield. And while we've seen a number of bankruptcies thus far and do expect that to continue, we do believe that this will create uh, distressed credit opportunities at, at some point down the road. And just looking at what's transpired this year, uh, 19 exploration and production firms have filed for bankruptcy in July and August alone. Um, 13 were filed by oil field services firms. And this brings the year-to-date total to 73 bankruptcies in the energy sector. This is the worst year. We're on pace for the worst year since 2016, as we expect more bankruptcies, not only through the end of this year, uh, but into 2021. And so when we look at energy stocks, which seem to be pricing oil somewhere in the mid 40s, low 50s, uh, the prospects of continued reopening in the economy and the development of a medical solution at some point down the road for dealing with the virus itself you know, I do think that you want to focus on quality, you want to focus on the sustainability of dividend payments, but I do believe that the cyclical nature of energy companies and simply how beaten up they've gotten over the past few years does set the stage for, for at least a modest bounce here as the economy comes back online uh, over the course of the, uh, of the coming quarters. And so, David, I mean, it seems that one of, one of the major themes here is people investing in energy companies for income. Uh, and with that in mind, and in a world where people really do need yield, what's your outlook on MLPs? So MLPs, they certainly offer the, the highest payout. What I would say there is, is with return and yield does come with a bit of risk. And really, at the end of the day, what we want to do is try to gauge how exposed these assets are to the underlying commodity prices. And a lot of money has left the MLP asset class since 2015. And what that's done is basically left a barge, a barbell of companies across this, this universe. Um, some have sustainable dividends, some are in relatively solid capital positions. But on the other end of the spectrum, you've also seen a number of much weaker companies kind of left behind. And so security selection with MLPs uh, remains of the utmost importance. And, and if we zoom out and kind of think about what MLPs are meant to be, right? they're really meant to be the toll road. They're meant to get the commodity from A to B. And part of what happened back in 2015, which is when we saw a significant increase in the correlation between commodity prices, oil prices specifically, uh, and the performance of MLPs was we found out that a lot of these companies had upstream exposure, they had downstream exposure, and really they weren't the pure midstream asset that people had originally thought that, that they were invested in. And so when, when we look at this space going forward, again, we want to make sure that, that we know what we own and we really are trying to own the toll road uh, rather than, than an integrated oil company. And at the same time, we're seeing investors become more demanding in terms of what they uh, expect from from these various energy companies, and you know the bottom line is that we see investors pounding the table on free cash flow. They they want 
these businesses to move away from a volume-based model and think more about cash flow production and profitability. And the interesting thing here is that true midstream assets have a distinct advantage over their counterparts when it comes to the predictability of free cash flow. You know, in contrast with the other parts of the energy sector. Um, Midstream in general, you you know how much you can move through the pipeline, you know how much that you're going to charge to do that. And so you can set much more accurate expectations and have a much greater degree of confidence in free cash flow generation, regardless of commodity price movement. Again, pure midstream assets are about moving things from A to B, not necessarily the underlying price of the commodity. And you know, zooming out and stepping away from MLPs for just a moment. This focus on free cash flow has begun to permeate the energy industry more broadly as companies really try to lure investors back with with a renewed focus on not just returns, but but capital discipline. And something that we're seeing across the the major integrated firms, we're seeing it across the MLPs as well, uh, is a reduction in CapEx, as I alluded to earlier, and kind of tying it to the theme of income. But by reducing CapEx, this means that dividend growth will be less supported by, by overall growth in production and the continued investment um, in, in wells and rigs and so on and so forth, and much more so by increasing free cash flow as growth spending moderates from very high levels. And so in general, when we look across MLPs, when we look across energy companies more broadly, we do see them beginning to instill a certain discipline in the way that they run their operations, moving away from that pure volume-based approach, which has characterized the sector really for the better part of the past couple of decades, and focusing more on profitability and sustainability um, as they try to bring the investment base, the investor base back, uh, which has clearly fled here over the course of the past five years. And so we, we do think that there's risk in the energy sector, but we do see some opportunity as well. Well, um, by my lights, it's really about understanding what you own, picking and choosing your spots accordingly, and, and trying to avoid investments that are going to be overly correlated with the underlying price of, of the commodities. Wise words. Uh, and uh, that was really interesting, David. Thank you very much for joining me. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. And please tune in to our next episode, when I'll be joined by Jordan Jackson, Global Market Strategist on our Market Insights team to discuss fixed income and the challenges in finding yield in today's very low-rate environment. Please stay on for the following important disclosures. The Market Insights program provides comprehensive data and commentary on global markets without reference to products. Designed as a tool to help clients understand the markets and support investment decision-making, the program explores the implications of current economic data and changing market conditions. For the purposes of MIFID 2, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID 2, MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the JP Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or any other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products.
In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risk. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at am.jpmorgan.com global privacy. This podcast is issued by the following entities. In the United States, by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local J.P. Morgan entities as the case may be. In Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories, except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland, and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe. In Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 1976015861586K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth. By J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-383-2080, AFSL 376-919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For U.S. only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.